0: Dr. Susan Hannon, thank you so much for joining us today on The Principal Podcast. I'm really excited to have you on.
1: Thank you so much for reaching out and for having me. I'm really excited as well.
0: Awesome. Awesome. I, uh, I, funny enough, I stumbled onto your work through Twitter of all places. (laughs) Um, Dr. Susan Hannon is a psychologist at the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Easton, Pennsylvania. Um, Please go ahead and introduce anything that you would like to about your background.
1: Yeah, so I am a, a licensed clinical psychologist. I work part-time at the practice that you just mentioned, the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health. I'm also an assistant professor of psychology at Lafayette College in eastern Pennsylvania. Um, I have been there, geez, well, I've been living in PA since 2017, so for about five years now. Um, and it's just, it's funny that you bring up Twitter, that that's where you found me. I have been Um, pretty staunchly anti social media for years now. And I'm now just like, slowly starting to get back into it. Because I think there is uh, just like with everything, there's a light and dark side. And so I'm trying to like tap into that more positive side more recently. So yeah, it's just it's funny that I've been avoiding Twitter for so long. And Twitter is how you found me.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's funny how that works out. I mean, you kind of hit the nail on the head when you said light and dark side, right? Like you don't want to have it consume you, obviously. But um, I forget exactly how it happened, but like I, I think I would like stumble onto one of the episodes from Radically Genuine, yeah. um, and then I was just kind of like scrolling down, and something out of your bio really stuck out to me. Um, and you know, I hope to talk about that later. But why don't you give us a little bit of background on you know how you how you got into this field, um, what interested you about it, and and uh, what's kept you around.
1: Yeah, no, that's such a good question. And I have been thinking about this a lot lately. Um, So I went to Kent State University. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, born and raised in Cleveland. And um, I originally was a journalism major. Um, And I think in part because I really liked writing, but also because I just like hearing people's stories. I Mm -hmm. find people fascinating and I just really enjoy getting to know people on a deeper level. Um, it turns out journalism, like writing for a newspaper, just wasn't the route for me. But I was taking psychology classes at the time as well, and I was really loving my psych classes, especially abnormal psych. Um, and again, I think it ties into just my fascination with understanding people. Um, and now, as a as a clinical psychologist and being a, able to actually, uh, you know, provide therapy for folks, I I really think that. I feel so lucky in that position. I feel like it's such a privileged place to be because I'm in a room with someone and they are sharing like typically the most intimate details about their life. Um, Maybe things that they have never shared with anyone else or only a few people. And it's just like, there's something so raw about it and so real that I think in like your typical everyday conversation, you understandably just don't get. So I think that is what has really kept me like, around like continuing on with this um career even though it can be really challenging at times yeah it's just such a privilege to get to know people in that really um deep way
0: yeah it's interesting right like how we sometimes are so much more receptive and open to opening up our deepest darkest secrets with like a complete stranger right Mm -hmm. like on the other side of the conversation versus like You know telling your your friends or your family or you know not the not the friends that you consider to be your best friends but like you almost share more with a stranger than you would with somebody that you're super close to and talk to every day or even a colleague right
1: isn't that so interesting right and i think each person might have their own rationale for that but i think there is something to like at least in my field with psychology like i'm I'm, I'm supposed to be like objective and unbiased. And of course I have my biases. Right. But there is something to, yeah. Like sharing something with someone who knows nothing about you, doesn't know your friends, doesn't know your past history. It's like this blank slate. I think there's something really framed to that, that can allow people to open up even though Mm -hmm. don't get me wrong. It it still is really challenging for some people to open up um, at least initially.
0: Yeah. So, how do you get some of the? I know that some of the extroverted people might be more receptive to opening up to you sooner than than some of the more introverted people, or some of the people who tend to keep to themselves. Like, what are some of the leading questions that you ask people in order to um, to get them to share a little bit more with you and and to be able to dig deep into things?
1: That's a really good question. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that you bring up extroverts and introverts. I actually don't know if those personality traits per se, like influence how people open up in treatment. So like the way that I think about introverts and extroverts, it's like what fills your bucket. Um, Mm -hmm. So typically, if you're introverted, um, it doesn't mean you don't like talking to other people or going to parties or engaging in social stuff. But typically for introverts, that just drains them Quicker And so sure. they recharge alone, right? Where extroverts mm-hmm. get their energy or fill their bucket from interacting with other people. Um, so yeah, that's interesting. I don't know if introverts or extroverts have a, a more or less challenging time opening up, but I think what helps people open up in treatment, at least from my experience has been um, really just like creating a space where there is no judgment, where, the person sitting in front of me truly is free to be like whoever they are. And that might change from like week to week, moment to moment, month to month. But yeah, just allowing that person to feel safe expressing whatever emotion, whatever thought comes up, no matter how silly or quote crazy they think it is, like my reaction to that really matters, I think. Um, And so if I respond in a very, like, curious and non-judgmental way, I think then that, like, fosters that feeling of safety and session so that clients think, like, okay, like, I, I can continue to share, like, my true self and I won't be judged for that.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have you always been, like, a kind of a, a curious and inquisitive person who's who's always been, like, a good listener? Or is that something that you've had to work on um, throughout Ooh, your career?
1: That's a good question. Um, I almost feel like the people closest to me would be able to answer that better, right? Mm-hmm. Than myself. I think I've always been curious. Fair sure. point. Um, yeah. I've always just been curious about like, again, like particularly people, like how people work, but just how things work, like why things are the way that they are. Um, have I always been a good listener? I mean, I'm, I'm not always a good listener. Um, right. Like we all struggle with that, but yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I I, th- I think that's how a lot of my friends would describe me. Like probably even like going back to high school. I feel like I can't remember much prior to high school. Um, but yeah, I, I do think that mm, maybe some of these traits were a precursor to starting my path in psychology, if that makes sense.
0: Right. Right. That would definitely make sense. Right. Because if you're naturally somebody who is kind of more engaged in conversation, then you're going to be able to kind of like pay attention to the little things that people might share with you and then um, extract more tidbits of information into the conversation from there.
1: Yeah, exactly. And like, don't get me wrong. I think you can learn to do and be anything. I think you can learn to be a quote good listener. However we're defining good. I think there's a lot of like mindfulness involved in that, but yeah, I think, particularly with um, like a, a psychologist career, um, like a huge part of my job is just being there and listening to some really painful things sometimes. So if I wasn't interested in that beforehand, like I I don't think I, it probably would have like led to this career path that I'm in. Yeah.
0: Right. Right. If that wasn't something that you already cared about, then you probably wouldn't have gone into the field of psychology yeah
1: that's a really Um,
0: interesting point yeah so the the thing that i stumbled on onto your bio that made me want to reach out to you in the first place was um i believe i forget the exact wording of it but i believe that uh, there was a sentence in your bio that mentioned that you um are fascinated by how we use our friends to regulate our emotions Mm -hmm. yeah Uh,
1: yeah so that's something that i actually was researching um that, and I'll go into the study. That particular study is on pause, unfortunately, because of COVID. COVID kind of put a wrench in a lot of um, academics, research projects. But yeah, so I I guess maybe just to start with a little bit more background about um, more like my academic self, even though like my academic and my um, like professional or therapist self definitely bleed into each other. But I particularly study trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. And I've always been curious about how people, particularly people who have been traumatized, um, how they regulate their emotions. So like all of that internal stuff. Um, And there's like different buckets of emotion regulation, if you will. So Mm -hmm. one bucket is what we'd call um, intrapersonal emotion regulation. So it's like how I... Uh, Myself, as Susan, regulate my sadness or my anxiety or my joy. Um, Like if I'm feeling really anxious, maybe I take a couple of deep breaths and ground myself, right? Like that's me mm, purposefully, consciously regulating my emotions. And it sounds really simple, um, but there's a lot of like steps that go into that. Like first, it takes awareness to know I'm even feeling something at all, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which a lot of us don't want to feel. A lot of the stuff that we do, that our body produces, just um, avoid
0: it or ignore it. Exactly. Or it'll Push go it away. Down.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. like, the first skill is just recognizing, like, oh, like my heart's racing and I'm feeling kind of sweaty. Like, oh, I, I know this. Like, oh, hello, old friend. Like your anxiety, welcome back. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's like the first step, and then it's like choosing what skill in the moment will be most effective for helping me regulate that anxiety or whatever emotion it is so that I can achieve like whatever goal I'm trying to achieve in the moment. Um, like if my goal, if I was feeling a little anxious, let's say before starting this podcast, and my goal Mm -hmm. was to be clear and concise and, um, seem like I know what I'm talking about, like maybe, you know, taking a couple of deep breaths would be an effective strategy for this particular situation. So yeah, it's it's really complex. There's a lot that goes into it. Um, But then there's also this other bucket of interpersonal emotion regulation strategies or skills. And that's how we use, I think consciously or unconsciously, other people to regulate our own emotions. So there was a study done hmm, a few years ago, at, I think it's in the social psych field, um, The I want to give the author credit, the, the first author's last name I think is Marigold, and uh, they were looking at how participants, people in this research study with low self-esteem and high self-esteem, uh, whether they differed on how effective they perceived two different emotion regulation strategies. So let me, let me describe those two strategies. So one emotion regulation strategy that they examined was validation. Um, So validation is really like empathy with communication. It's putting yourself like really trying to put yourself in the shoes of that other person, whoever it is that you're communicating with. And then telling that person like, it makes sense why you feel that way. Like I would feel that way if I were in your shoes or like that sucks. Yeah. Like that sounds really hard. That sounds really painful, right? You're, you're validating someone's experience. So that's one emotion regulation strategy that this study looked at. Mm -hmm. Uh, Other emotion regulation strategies, it was called positive reframe. Um, And I think maybe the most like simple way to describe that is it's like you're putting a positive spin on something. So let's say, I don't know, I'm interacting with a student and they didn't get this internship that they really wanted. A positive reframe response might be like, well, maybe this opens you up to a new opportunity, like a Mm -hmm. new internship that you didn't even think was possible. And you're going to like have this whole different path that you didn't even see coming. Right. It's like, um, putting a positive spin on a, on a negative situation.
0: Finding the silver lining.
1: Exactly. Yeah, that's a beautiful yep. way to put it. Finding the silver lining. Yeah. So what I thought was interesting that this study found um, was that specifically people with low self-esteem found that silver lining strategy, that cognitive reappraisal strategy to be like almost invalidating, to not be effective in helping them regulate their own emotions. What's interesting is that you didn't see that effect for folks with high self-esteem. If you have high self-esteem and other people are trying to validate you or provide that silver lining, like both of those work equally well. Um, But specifically in the low self-esteem group, the validation, that strategy was effective, but the positive reframe was not. And I I think some people can relate to this. Right. Like if you've ever had uh, an experience where like just something really shitty happened, Um, like, I don't know, maybe you uh, like had a date planned and it fell through and you were really bummed. Um, Sometimes like all you want is for someone to say to you like, that sucks. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. like that just, I get why you're bummed. And I think for some people, when folks immediately turn to like a positive reframe, it almost feels like to the person on the other end, like, oh, like, but you're not really hearing me. Like, I get it. Like, maybe the next best date is on their way. But like, that's not how I'm feeling right now. Um, So yeah, I, I started looking at that in specific Um, psychiatric diagnoses. So like I mentioned earlier, I study post-traumatic stress disorder, but I also study and I'm interested in a personality disorder called borderline personality disorder. Mm -hmm. And at least um, in practice, clinically, I think we see this presentation a lot with folks who are diagnosed with BPD, where they respond really well to validation. Um, But other strategies like positive reframe, putting that positive spin on it, can really fall flat or just like derail um, a session or derail a conversation because they perceive that to be invalidating. Um, I, don't, I don't think that's ever been empirically tested in that population of folks with borderline personality disorder or even PTSD. So I designed a study that was looking to see how different folks Um, respond to these different emotion regulation strategies when they're, you know, given by other people. Um, But yeah, like I said earlier, unfortunately, COVID put that project on an indefinite pause because like all in-person data collection stopped for like, gosh, I don't know, three semesters, which is like a year and a half. Um, Yeah. But yeah, I feel like I just spilled a lot there, so I don't know if you have any like follow up questions or thoughts related to that. Yeah,
0: that's 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 too bad that the um, the study had to be put on hold because I think the insights from that from you know and the findings from that study would have been really fascinating to talk about. So hopefully we can pick this up again once <laughs> once those resumed. Yeah. But why do you why do you think self esteem plays a role in why um, you know putting putting a positive spin on it might be well received by a certain group of people and and not well received by another do you think it's because people with high self-esteem might think that they um are capable of doing something else right like are capable of going after the thing with the positive spin on it or of of achieving the thing with the positive spin on it and people with low low self-esteem just had so many eggs in one basket so to speak yeah does that make sense
1: I think that's a really interesting question, and I think you're onto something, right? And I mean, like, what do we even mean by self-esteem? Like, I think that's a very, it's a, this is where sometimes I struggle with psychology because we, we understandably like our scientists in one realm and we want to measure things and it's just, it's hard to even define. I think some of these things that we're trying to measure, Mm -hmm. Um, I think in that particular study, the Marigold study that I referenced earlier, uh, they used a like well validated and sound measure of self-esteem that, yeah. So folks with high self-esteem are people who have mm, like a lot of self-worth Um, And maybe kind of like confidence, what you're speaking to that, like, okay, even if something goes wrong, like, it's, it's not the end of the world. Like, I know I have the capabilities to kind of pick myself up and to keep moving forward. Right.
0: Like if I get rejected, sorry, if I get rejected from this position, I have a belief in myself that I'm going to go back into the job market and I can go find something that's as good, if not better. Exactly.
1: Like those Mm -hmm external events don't necessarily define me. I think people with high self-esteem would endorse that belief, right? Like, okay, I didn't get the job or I didn't get that date or I didn't get whatever it's disappointing, but like, that's not who I am. Mm-hmm. And I know what I'm capable of and that I, I, I can right? like find that silver lining. So yeah, I think that absolutely has something to do with it. And then the inverse is people with lower self-esteem or maybe have, very little like sense of self-worth it's it can feel almost impossible to see that silver lining, right? It's like they had all of their eggs in that one basket, that one experience. And so when that falls away, it's like, there's just pain left. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, I can absolutely understand then why it could feel invalidating if someone that they're in conversation with tries to say, but look, like look at all these other things over here. Look at these opportunities. I think someone um, with lower self esteem, or like I said earlier, maybe with a diagnosis like borderline personality disorder, it's just it's harder to like genuinely believe that.
0: Yeah. Yep. I can I can totally see that being the case. And um, you know, this reminds me of like that advice that you'll hear from time from time to time, where people are like, you know, don't don't let the highs get too high and don't let the lows get too low, right? Just try to stay even keeled. I mean, what's your what's your perspective on that kind of like Ooh. cliche tried advice?
1: That's an interesting question. And I actually don't know. I thought you were going to say a different cliche, actually. I don't know if...
0: Where did you think I was going?
1: I thought you were going to say, I do want to get back to that, this yeah. high, high, low, low thing because I think that's really interesting. I thought you were going to say... Right. So there's like this golden rule or whatever you want to call it, like treat others how you want to be treated. Right. And I think that is that that saying is very well intentioned. Mm -hmm. But if you think about it, like how you want to be treated might not be how someone else wants to be treated. Right. And I think some of this research that I'm speaking to um, speaks to that where like maybe validation is a strategy that's really effective for me but it might not be for the person I'm speaking to or like positive reframe, silver lining finding might be effective for me, but it might not be effective for the person I'm sitting across from. So sure. I almost like to change that golden rule, that saying to like, well, get to know other people and then treat them how they're asked to be treated. Mm-hmm. And it might be how you also want to be treated, but it might not. And I because I think that matters um, in and how just that, what your effect will be on that other person. So I don't know if any of that made sense, but yeah, I thought, yeah, that's where I think
0: thinking. it did because some people might have varying, I mean, people obviously have varying levels of self-esteem, right? Like that's just, yep. that's a and commonly it known
1: in fact. It throughout, throughout our lives, right? It's not yeah. something that's just stable forever. Yeah,
0: sure. Yeah. Yeah. A certain experience can cause you to have lower self-worth or self-esteem and something can cause you to have higher self-worth or self-esteem.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. But going back to what you were saying before so maybe maybe say i'm curious if you could say more about at least your perception of this like don't get don't let the highs get too highs and don't get let the lows get too low like what if you um if you hold hold true to that belief like what is the value you see in that that statement
0: sure so I guess this comes from my background a little bit right and like the people that I've studied right so I come from an investment type of background right right where where like performance is measured over a pretty long time horizon mm-hmm. right over maybe like a like your track record so to speak right is usually measured over a period that's greater than like five to 10 years, right? Because it's like, okay, well, is this person's expertise enough to um, withstand like a bear market, a correction, whatever, like, can they outperform over a long period of time, right? And so obviously, the field of finance and the field of psychology are literally intertwined, right? Like your behaviors and your emotions play so much into your investment thesis and, and your ability to, um, like, stay calm under pressure and these types of things right and so like my mentors and the people that i study and and like the books that i've read like have always said that like you kind of want to be even keeled right like when shit's hitting the fan like you don't want to let the lows get too low and when like you have 20 wins 20 consecutive wins in a row like you don't want to um let your ego become ego is something i want to talk to you about later but uh, you don't want your ego to become inflated and you don't want to um, you know chalk up all of that positive performance to something that you did maybe the market's just working in your favor right so like if you tend to stay even keeled then over a longer period of time maybe you'll be able to regulate your decisions a little bit better than somebody who you know gets super high on the highs and super super negative on the lows
1: yeah, right. So I think there is like who who doesn't want to feel the high highs? Like that is a great feeling, right? Yep, but yep. there is a cost to that because there is a duality to everything. Like we we know we're feeling high or we know we're feeling happy or on top of the world because we know what it feels like to not feel those things. We know what mm-hmm. it feels like to be in despair and sadness. And so right, I think like the further that spectrum goes, the more it it kind of feels like a roller coaster, right? Um, And I do think that the highs and the low, and let me preface this by saying that, like what I'm about to say next, I think is really just like my own opinion. (laughs) Um, But I I do think the high highs and the low lows, someone who experiences that are are very much tied to their ego. and i'd love to like start talking about the ego if that's okay with you but let me ask you first like what cuz i think people have different ideas of what the ego is so like when you hear the word ego what do you think
0: oh man you're turning the uh sorry i know i'm I, I, I
1: now welcome to the Susan show <laughs>
0: Susan, i'm not i'm not the expert you are um <laughs> ego i guess
1: like just what first comes to mind
0: i guess it's like a shield from embarrassment.
1: Okay, so it's like a protector, like it's right that like right. protects you. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people think about it like that. I, so if I, I can give like a little bit of history about the ego, so I think yeah, please do. Like a lot of people when they hear the word ego, um, it comes from. Sigmund Freud's work. Are you familiar with Freud at all, or at least have like heard the name, like the famous- at
0: least have heard the name? Probably some of the studies that you'll mention, but yeah, not, like the famous totally
1: psychoanalysts there. from what I think like the late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds, um, really developed the theory of psychoanalysis um, and the therapy of psychoanalysis, which has to do with like the role of the unconscious. So according to Freud, um, all of our, and when I say our, I mean humans, um, like driving fears, desires, wishes, anxieties, that all of these things are like stored in this unconscious reservoir. Like almost mm-hmm. as you can imagine an iceberg, um, like m- and that iceberg represents a human, like most of, what makes up that human is underneath the surface. Like you can't see it, you don't have access to it. Um, and Freud conceptualized this like unconscious reservoir as what he called the id, the ID, the id. So there's like the id, the ego and the superego. Right. Right. Um, yeah, and so the id is, you can almost think about the id as like an infant, like just completely acting out of pleasure. like. Okay, I want ice cream, so I'm going to eat the entire gallon of ice cream. I want to go shopping, so I'm going to take out all of my money from my bank and just buy everything. Like, just Mm -hmm. completely acting out of pleasure. Um, Like, as an adult, clearly that's not sustainable. Like, you can do that, but there's going to be, like, significant consequences to that.
0: Right. But you show restraint in certain situations, right?
1: Well, that's where, right. So that's where these other like personality parts come into play again. And this is all just according to Freud. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so then we have the the other kind of end of the id is the superego. And this is like our moral compass. So the superego is the part of the personality that's like, uh, you want ice cream, ice cream's bad for you, there's tons of sugar, you're not going to have any ice cream, or you're not going to spend like a dime of your money because you need to save up. Like that way of living also is really challenging, right? Because it's so rigid. Um, So that's where the ego comes into play, at least according to Freud's theory. So the ego is like this mediator between the id and the superego it's like almost mm-hmm. like the, the the manager like the executive director like the ego can't always have what it wants all the time and neither can the superego so this ego like mediates it so that's where i think the 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 term was coined and like how it got popularized um you know Freud's theory isn't scientific um, because it's, it's what we'd say, it's not falsifiable, so you can't disprove it. So mm-hmm. um, I think a lot of folks in, in clinical psychology now, um, I mean, there are still absolutely people who are interested in psychoanalysis and Freud, um, but there has been kind of like a movement away from that just because it's not scientific um, in the way at least that, that we think about science now. But um, I, the way that I think about the ego is actually a little bit different. So uh, the way that I think about ego is, ego is, so we have all of these thoughts, like running through our mind all the time, right? Sure. I'm sure you can sure. relate to this.
0: Your internal monologue, so to speak, right? I
1: love how you said that. Yeah. Internal monologue. Um, I actually conceptualize that as the ego and so many of us myself included are so fused to that internal monologue where we think that that is who we are Mm -hmm. so i think that those thoughts like make up susan or make up the person that i am and and that can get a little bit tricky right because that means if i have the thought like i'm a loser i'm a failure i'm no good Well, if my thoughts are who I am, if that's like my ego, then like that, it must be true. I must be a failure. I must not be good at anything. And therefore I'm going to live my life based off of these thoughts that I believe to be truths, but really are just like this random noise in my mind. Um, So I think, yeah, I think many people are very much fused with that internal monologue that ego and aren't aware that there is like this awareness behind the thoughts, right? Like mm-hmm. if you can sit and just for five minutes, like watch your thoughts go by almost like imagine they're like leaves on a stream just floating by. Uh, that means you cannot be your thoughts, right? If you can, you, if you can observe your thoughts, that means there's like a, an observer or an awareness behind the thoughts. Um, and this ties back to, I think what you were saying about like the high highs and the low lows, because when we are so very much fused to our ego or that internal monologue, that like sense of self, that sense of I, then when we're feeling on top of the world, it's like, I did this, right? Like I'm the greatest, I can do right. anything. But then the other side of that coin is when we're in that really low, low, pit, low place, it's, like oh i'm like not a worthy person at all or i have no purpose or like i can't do anything right so what's the point to any of this Mm -hmm. um you it's like you can't have the highs without the lows and so i think so many people are like chasing the highs when really i to me the ultimate chase is like diffusion from the ego right? Like diffuse, like the understanding that you are not your thoughts, you are not that internal monologue. And there is an awareness behind those thoughts. That is just, it's, mm, it's different. I don't know. I, I hope that made sense. Yeah,
0: you know, that was amazing. How do you, how do you create that distance between those thoughts that might be ego driven and the, the kind of like objective, objective <laughs> as objective as you can be the objective third party that's watching those thoughts.
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I know for me personally and this is something that I is woven through a lot of the treatments that I do, but um like different mindfulness practices can help diffuse from those thoughts like like the the exercise that I just said a moment ago where you're literally just watching your thoughts go by like they're clouds in the sky or leaves on a stream or on a river, uh, that consistent practice of that can help you recognize like, again, like, okay, there's an awareness behind these thoughts. Um, so these thoughts aren't necessarily true. They're not necessarily like rooted in fact, it's like habitual. Like I've thought these things for so long. I've like convinced myself that they're true. Um, so yeah, I think mindfulness can be really effective. I I incorporate that into my treatments with folks a lot. Um, And by
0: mindfulness, I mean, just going back to what you just said, you literally just mean like sort of in a meditative fashion, just watch your thoughts go by for like five or 10 minutes and just observe what you see.
1: Thank you for asking that question. Um, yeah, I think mindfulness can mean so many different things. There's so many different ways to be mindful. Like I think of mindfulness as like with intention, like paying attention to the present moment, whatever the present moment might be, whether it's thoughts that are running through your mind or a emotion that's coming up or a sensation or something that you're feeling like on your desk, or it could, it's like really like using your senses in order to experience like the here and now. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think so often what happens is we'll, we'll have an experience and then our, internal monologue that ego will put like a, a judgment to it like this is good this is bad I like this I don't like this and that kind of like takes you away from the reality of the experience like the experience just is it just is what it is but that ego that mind it attached it always like has to attach like some meaning or some kind of judgment to it um, and I'm not saying that's a good or bad thing it's just sometimes when we like constantly placing those judgments or labels to it 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 just it really takes us out of the experience itself
0: mm-hmm. and correct me if this isn't the right terminology or vocabulary to use when you're when you're talking about the ego um but how can having too much of a belief in your ego detract from like like how can that be a negative thing and how how, how can that be dangerous
1: people will say like, well, I feel really good. Like I have high self-esteem. Like, so why, like, why is attaching to my ego? Why is that a bad thing? And I would say, again, it's not a good or a bad thing, but there are consequences to like clinging so tightly to this belief about yourself because inevitably there's going to be low times. Because again, like there's that inherent duality to To everything, like if you're feeling high because you're not feeling low, and you know what low has felt like in the past, so I think the the danger, the consequences, if you cling very tightly to when you're feeling really good, the same thing is going to happen when you're feeling really bad. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, just clinging so tightly to that ego can just kind of like take you on that roller coaster ride. And and I think when we cling our ego and we're in that low place is where a lot of people experience suffering
0: yeah and i think it i mean i I think i think what you're trying to say is like it it almost makes you more fragile in a way right because you're so Mm -hmm. tightly attached to your belief of what you should be or how you should feel that if things don't go your way then you've essentially just made yourself fragile by being so um tightly woven into your into your perception of yourself
1: that's a really interesting way to put it yeah absolutely um right because then when like holes are poked into your belief about yourself that can be really jarring right if you're clinging so tightly to this belief or any belief of like who you are um it can all feel like it's like, like you're saying, fragilizing, I'm just imagining like someone in like a glass house. Like, it's like you you poke one belief, you throw one stone at that glass wall and it just like shatters. shatters the whole and thing, And then it's yep. like, oh, like what do I do now? So yeah, I do think, I, I see absolutely what you're saying, yeah, yeah. But it's like, I also can empathize, it's hard to let go of the ego in that way because we like the high feeling. And so I think kind of going back to earlier, a while ago, what you were saying about the highs and the lows, I think someone who is learning how to like diffuse from that internal monologue, from that ego state, they don't experience the extreme highs and lows. And I'm not saying they're numb. It's just that extreme nature isn't there as
0: much. Right right and like it it appears like the reason that they always talk about that advice is like it appears that the people who are able to regulate their their feelings and their perceptions of themselves through the highs and through the lows are the ones that perform the best over a 20 30 40 year period right because they don't they don't let their um emotions dictate their or not emotions, but like their feelings of themselves and their self worth dictate yeah. their investment decisions going forward.
1: It's, I, it's I, this is such a fascinating conversation. It's so funny that you're bringing up like finance stuff because for a long time I've told like told myself the story of like I don't really know anything about finance. I really never saw like the similarities between psychology and finance before my sister is an accountant. And if you were to ask me like what she does on a daily basis, I'm sure she's told me millions millions of times. I don't know. She does like tax stuff. Like, I don't know. She uses sell. Um, Yeah. So I just, I so appreciate this conversation and just the comparison between like what you just described, and like the world of psychology, because yeah, absolutely. Like when we, as people are not fused with the thoughts we have about ourselves and recognize that they're just thoughts, it's just chatter in the mind, that then, like who we are as a person has nothing to do with that internal monologue. Um, It's no longer tied to our self worth. And I think there's a lot of freedom in that.
0: So, how does your ego? Um, how can your ego get in the way of you embracing what you truly feel? How you know? How can, how can it be an obstacle to embracing your emotions?
1: Like it's not just the ego. I'm also thinking about how, like, we very much live in a culture now, in my opinion, where certain internal experiences are judged to be good or bad, like anxiety is quote a bad thing and we want to get rid of our anxiety or fear is a bad thing and we want to get rid of fear we want to get rid of sadness when I come from the belief that like all of our emotions have functions and while they might be uncomfortable to experience there's something that you can learn from each emotional experience and like we've just evolved to like have these emotions for a reason they have like helped us keep like we as a species survive over time. And so yeah, I um I think that it's not just the ego, it's it's like how, what what is told to us from society like how we should react to the emotions. Like oh no, I'm feeling anxious, this is bad. Like let me Yeah you know, avoid it. Let me suppress it. And so then that that then gets internalized by the ego, right. By like Mm -hmm. our internal monologue of this is bad. I need to get rid of it versus a kind of a more curious stance, right? Like, Oh, like this is an interesting like sensation I'm having right now. Like, like, let me like explore this more. Let me like, see if I can like hold space for this. And some emotions are just like purely painful. So I I recognize that like what I'm saying is um, it's simple, but it's not easy to do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And the the reason I wanted to get your perspective on that is like your ego can often make you um, try to amplify who you, who you believe that you are. Like, let me, let me give you an example. Like if, if somebody's like, if somebody's trying to project that they're the most confident person ever, right? Like their ego is going to tell them that you are confident, right? And like, if they're about to go speak, they're about to go like give a TED talk or something, right? And they feel nervousness, like there, there seems to be like a disconnection, right? Because your ego is like expecting you to be like this confident person who never gets nervous. But then obviously, like when you're about to give a TED talk in front of, you know, thousands of people, you're, I mean, I, I, don't, I would feel nervous. I know most people would probably and feel most, nervous.
1: Unless you have done it you know, tons and tons of times, you're going to feel nervous. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And so like, there's, there's that disconnect between what your ego thinks you should be and, and yes. expects you to be yes. and what's actually going on inside.
1: Yeah. That's such a great example for so many reasons. Like, right. So it, it takes you out of the present moment, right? It's like, Oh, like instead of just, okay, like I'm feeling my heart racing and my hands are a little sweaty, like it makes sense why I'm feeling this way. Like the ego jumps in and it's like, but wait, you're confident. Confident people don't feel this way. Why are you feeling this way? And Mm. then you start freaking out even more and then you get even more anxious, right? And like, I think the inverse is true too. Like, if you maybe don't feel like you're a confident person. If your thoughts, your ego are telling you that you're not confident, you're not good at public speaking, you then believe that to be true. And you might um, like decline a podcast invitation, or you might not present on something that otherwise would have gone really well because you believe this story about yourself and don't recognize that it's really just a story and even maybe because yesterday you had the thought that you aren't, I don't know, good at speaking and you're not confident, that has nothing to do with, like, who you are right now. Um, yeah, so that's what I mean. Like, we're so tied to these, like, stories and beliefs about ourselves that the ego feeds us that, that can cause so much suffering.
0: Right. Like, if you, I don't know. I, I feel like I come across this all the time. Like, somebody thinks that they're the friendliest person ever, and then, like, somebody says that they weren't friendly this one time, and then it, their entire image of themselves is shattered. And it's like, was that whole thing, like, ego driven, or was it just, like, was it genuinely a belief that you have about yourself? And I think it's it, so fascinating.
1: It is. Yeah. And it could be both, and it's, but, right. I think the like, the, um, the broader point that you're saying i think is that like clinging to any belief about yourself like that like there's a cost to that yeah.
0: um yeah yeah i feel like we could talk about that one forever um you said something earlier that I, th- I thought was really interesting and a good segue into another question i had for you um you said that every emotion has its place right like mm-hmm. we've evolved over hundreds of thousands of years because and these emotions have stuck with us because each emotion has a place um Anger is often viewed as a negative emotion that we should try to avoid because it makes us do things we regret. Yeah. What is your perspective on anger?
1: Yeah, I think anger, like any emotion, like fear, sadness, joy, I think it absolutely has its place. I think it's valid. I think anger is communicating to us that um, maybe like someone that we cared about, like betrayed us in some way or harmed us in some way. And, 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 in, and that's just one example, but in that example, like anger is absolutely valid. Um, and I want to be clear that I think all emotions are valid, but that doesn't mean the behavior that might result from that emotion is valid. So for example, um, this is a very extreme example, and it's never happened. But let's say, like a client punches me in the face out of anger. I'm not- I, I hope
0: you're not telling this story from experience. No,
1: I'm not. I mean, it has happened to people before, but knock on wood, it has not happened to me yet. Um, I would never validate that behavior, right? Like, like that's invalid. Like that, you, you can't go around punching people. But I can validate the emotion behind it. I can validate the the very real anger that they were experiencing. Um, so yeah, I think, I think anger absolutely is valid. Sometimes anger is tricky too, because sometimes anger is hmm, what we'd call like a secondary emotion. So if you imagine, um, like a road rage scenario, Mm -hmm. let's say, um, I don't know, a father is driving in his car and he's got his kid in the backseat and they're driving on the highway and, um, a car like cuts them off and the dad has to pump the brakes I think in those scenarios, oftentimes the initial emotion is fear, right? Like, oh my gosh, like I almost got in an accident. My like most precious cargo, my kid behind me almost got in an accident. Yeah. Like that's terrifying. Um, and I think for a lot of people, fear is hard to hold. It's hard to make space for and just be with. And I, I, I chose the example with a man, purposefully, because I think in our culture, it's like more appropriate for men to feel anger than maybe other emotions. Um, So, okay. You're feeling fear in that moment initially. And then for whatever reason, it's like, you can no longer hold that fear. So then it turns to anger that feels for some people more appropriate. It feels, even though it might seem counterintuitive, it might actually feel more safe than feeling like fear or another emotion. Um, So that's where you see maybe like some of the road rage and the angry outbursts so again like i don't i don't um i wouldn't validate those behaviors uh in that situation but um i think the anger makes sense
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. anger is a tricky one and i i think you're you've been saying that in in you know all the examples that you've spoken about um anger is such a tricky one right because it like in any situation where you're where you're angered about something you're going to receive feedback from friends i mean speaking of using friends to regulate our emotions Mm -hmm. you're going to receive feedback like don't be angry about this like anger is not good just just avoid your anger or do something more productive with it but like it's very hard to find a resource that that actually talks about channeling your anger in a more productive way so like do you have any thoughts on how you know, anger as a secondary emotion can be channeled into something else and how we can, um, mitigate our anger in crisis yeah, situations.
1: I think it's really like, and so the, the, one of the treatments that I, um, have training in, it's called dialectical behavior therapy or DBT. I don't know if you've heard of it before. It's really blown up over the past few years. It started with folks who, as I mentioned before, I study, um, folks with borderline personality disorder. And a lot of folks with that diagnosis have a lot of anger issues, like on both ends of the spectrum. So there's people who have a hard time regulating their anger and it just kind of bubbles over. And then like these are folks who have angry outbursts and have road rage and throw things and hit people. But then like the other end of the spectrum are people who are so terrified of feeling angry like, maybe out of fear that they won't be able to manage it, that they like suppress that anger. And mm-hmm. that has consequences too, because if someone or people close to you in your life are making you angry and you're not communicating that with them, that's gonna make the relationship suffer, right? I mean, your resentment's probably gonna build um, yeah. and you're just not gonna get your needs met. And so I do think anger is like any emotion where it does have a function. And so I would be cautious of the advice. Like pretend your anger doesn't exist. Just push it down, channel it into something else. I I'm curious, like what you can learn from that anger, right? Like what what is going around, what's going on around you that is making you feel angry? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the important first step is to allow yourself to actually feel that anger and to sit with it, and and then perhaps like channel it into action or or you know whatever the scenario calls for.
0: Um,
1: Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like what can you do to change something in your environment that's constantly bringing you this emotion?
1: Exactly. Right. Because just pushing away the anger is invalidating yourself, right? Because basically if you're doing that constantly, what you're telling yourself is like, well, I shouldn't care about what's angering me. Um, or it's not that big of a deal, but clearly it is if your body is responding in that way.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if there's something, and if it's a repeated stimulus that's causing you to act a certain way, then that's something that you should probably try to remove or, or change. Change,
1: remove Exactly. And the only way you're going to be able to do that is if you allow yourself to understand the anger, right? Like maybe you're in a romantic relationship and your partner treats you badly. And, um, Maybe by allowing yourself to experience that anger that helps motivate you to change that relationship, whether it's having a, like, frank conversation with that person, like, hey, this is a deal breaker or leaving or whatever it might be. Um, Yeah, yeah, I think you have to let yourself, like, sit with it and make space for it in order to learn, like, what it's trying to tell you.
0: I think this is fascinating too, because um, I feel like it ties back into the whole conversation that we just had about creating distance between your ego and the objective third party that's behind your ego, mm-hmm. right? Like, so like introducing more mindfulness practices might allow you to sit with your anger a little bit more. And like, yes, you might be furious for the first two, three minutes, but like recognizing what your thoughts are, Um could be a, a good long-term strategy for you.
1: Yeah. Right. Because I think like going back to our conversation about the ego, I think it's so, okay. We're, we're experiencing anger and anger is maybe like, I don't know when I experience anger, I know like my heart starts racing a little bit more. I get, I feel warm, right? Like I feel hot. I feel hot in my face. And then I think though, like the ego dives in and it's like, oh my God, like this is awful and like places all of this judgment onto it. And that's where like the rage comes in and like some of maybe the behaviors that we're not um, too proud of. And so, right, I think being able to just experience the experience for what it is in the moment and being able to diffuse from that internal monologue and that ego that's like shouting all of these things at you about what the ego thinks it is, I think that can be so useful and yeah i mean mindfulness is is just one way to go about doing it i think um you know i think different people have different ways of kind of learning how to diffuse from that
0: yep um there was another question that i had that i really really wanted to get your perspective on um whether it's in business or personal life like we're We're almost conditioned to follow conventional wisdom, right? From a young age, like there's certain like axioms or phrases that are kind of like drilled into our heads, right? Like whether it be acting a certain way or behaving a certain way in a professional setting, like whatever.
1: How you want to be treated, right? Kind of what we were talking about before, yeah.
0: Exactly, yeah. Like along the same vein, like a lot of times the people who tend to be the most happy or the most successful are the ones who are able to kind of like go against against the grain a little bit or go against conventional wisdom and stop following the herd and kind of just like charging charting their own path yeah. um, how can using your understanding of psychology and your study and your research in psychology how can we become more comfortable going against conventional wisdom
1: That is such a fabulous question. I love that you asked that. Yeah. And I actually, I think it ties into honestly, everything that we've been talking about. I think a lot of that conventional beliefs, like gets very much tied into our ego, that internal monologue. So I think, and I'm certainly guilty of this where like I'm I'm in my 30s and I'm now just questioning, like, some of my beliefs about the world and, like, wait a minute, do I actually, like, believe this? Or is this just something that's been told to me for so long that right. I've, like, convinced myself I believe it, but really I don't. Like, it takes a a willingness and a curiosity to be able to just question everything. Yep. Which includes, like, questioning your own being, right? Like, oh, like, I... I had this like character of Susan that I thought was Susan, but now I'm learning like, I don't really know who I am. And it's it's an uncomfortable place to be. Mm -hmm. So I think like that willingness to sit in that discomfort, um, I think like gets at what you're asking. Like if you have the desire to like, question conventional wisdom. And and like you said, like kind of step away from herd mentality. You have to question everything about yourself and your beliefs and where they come from. It's almost like this, like, I imagine like an onion. It's like, you're peeling back all of the layers to be like, mm-hmm. is this the truth? No. Is this the truth? No. Um, I don't know if that actually answers your question.
0: <laughs> but I, yeah, like, I mean, that's one of the reasons that I've enjoyed this conversation so much. Um, and like have like feel so much energy from this conversation is because I feel like, you know, I'm kind of experiencing a lot of the same things and a lot of the conversations that I have with people my age I'm, are experiencing the same thing too, right? Like, what do I like? Yes, I've been conditioned to, to think a certain way. But like, what do I actually believe? What do I actually care about? What do yeah. I actually stand for? Why do I support this political party versus the other? Do I do I even identify with this political party in the first place?
1: Mm-hmm. Right,
0: like yeah. just because I grew up this way doesn't mean I do. So, like, it's it's it finds its way into every single facet of your life.
1: Yeah, I know, and I, I I've been thinking about this so much lately, um, and this is part of the reason, like, to to circle back to the beginning of the conversation, like why I've stayed away, I think, from social media because. Mm-hmm it plays off of the in my opinion it plays off of the most extreme points of view like most extreme left most extreme right and that's all you're seeing because right. that it gets the most clicks because it plays off of like your fight or flight response at like alarm center
0: mm-hmm. but then
1: you think like oh this is like how the whole world is or how the whole country is um but then you like take a step back and you're like, like you said, but is it really like, you mm-hmm. know, that's not what I'm hearing in like individual conversations. And so, yeah, it's I think a lot of us have felt like we've just been swept up um, by this huge tidal wave. And like we're now just coming up for water and it's like questioning everything. Right. Like, Yeah. Um, which is exciting. Okay. Like I'm, I'm so excited to hear that people are like willing to start that process.
0: Yeah, and just like and just to piggyback on your point too, like I think another um another drawback or downfall from social media is that like it because you're seeing so many of the same views, it almost causes you to buy in to that because you're seeing like repetition is is the is the greatest, you know, the most powerful way to convince somebody of something, right? Like and the more you see the same exact views over and over said differently, the more you're kind of going to buy into that and believe that yourself too. So it's important to create the distance between you, you know, you, you, the individual and your social media profile, because otherwise you're going to start believing whatever you keep reading. Um, That's just how thoughts work. Right. So like, you have to be very, very aware of what you're consuming and and how that alters your perception of reality.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't have said it any better. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I understand like there is safety in wanting to belong to a group, right? Like there's comfort in that and like knowing that um, you have your tribe. But I think some folks against social media will say like, like, are we really supposed to be like this globalized of a people like, you know, thousands of years ago, whatever we were in like very small communities, very small tribes. Um, And now like everyone just has access to everything. And I'm not saying that's a good or bad thing, but I think it does play into like some of these things that we're talking about. Um, And, and what you're saying, like how, like you're now in this process of just trying to like question everything and have these conversations. Honestly, lately that's how I've been like conceptualizing my treatment with my clients, with my patients. It's like allowing them to have a space where they can in a, Free, non-judgmental way, um, like question their beliefs about everything to truly um, understand who they are and like who they want to be.
0: Right, right, and, and it comes, it ties back to that awareness and that mindfulness and knowing exactly what you want and like doing more things that allow you to connect with your internal monologue. Mm-hmm. Right.
1: Yeah. You don't want to get too caught up in. Diffuse from that, yeah. Internal monologue, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, awesome. Awesome. I really enjoyed this conversation, Dr. Susan Ann, and This was <laughs> fantastic. Um, I definitely want to have you back on at some point to talk about biases and what the most common types of biases are, how we can avoid them, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think that'd be a fascinating conversation too, but this was, this was great. And I want to be mindful of your time, but where can, um, where can people connect with you online and, and how can people uh, stay up to date with the latest things that you're researching?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, like, as I've been saying, I really don't have a huge social media presence. I did reactivate my Twitter. um, So it's like, it's super out of date. Like if you go to it, you're going to find posts from like years ago, but um, like my handle is Susan Hannon PhD. Um, That's probably the best way to get in contact with me right now. Um, I mean, you can like look me up on Lafayette college's website and there's some information about me there. But otherwise,
0: yeah. Awesome. Well, I will definitely link to the CIEBH and your Twitter profile and people will reach out. So um, this was awesome. Thank you again for your time.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun.